Herb Alpern, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Fangraphs prospect analyst and proprietor of Scouting the Sally, Mike Newman. In what follows, Newman and I discuss not only a number of prospects or otherwise young players, but also address the uh, larger issues so far as prospect analysis is concerned that those prospects and otherwise young players elicit. For example, in what follows, Newman and I discuss Hector Sanchez, currently the young backup catcher for the San Francisco Giants, and consider what role nutrition and fitness play both in the lives of minor leaguers and also our ability to project their future as major leaguers. We look also at DJ Hicks, a first baseman with good power, uh, but slightly old for his level, and what aspects of his prospect profile perhaps uh, stand out over other first base prospects. Also in this episode, we look at Nick Franklin, who made it to AAA as a shortstop prospect in the Seattle Mariners organization. With regard to Franklin, Mike Newman brings up the idea of reverse minor league translations, taking a player's line from AAA, for example, and finding its equivalent for, say, Class A. Interesting stuff. That. Of course, there is a lot more uh, to follow in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, featuring Mike Newman, which begins right now. I'm down like 32 pounds. Whoa. Since so, when? Since you were born? Since, uh, negative since pounds? July. Oh, since, since July. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, since July. So Just from the hiking? More to go. The hiking, and I do Weight Watchers online. Oh. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I'm down like 32. I've got 60 more to go. I want to be thin like you by the time Arizona comes around. Remember, uh, do you know Aaron Gleeman at all? You come across him on the internet? Uh, I do. I know Aaron. No, do I follow him on Twitter? Yeah. Do I know about his like hundred something pound weight loss? Yeah. It is crazy because I, I never saw him before, but it, you could see photos of him, and he looks like I. I mean, he looks totally different. Is yeah. Now he comes up on uh on like Facebook is like people you may know. Yeah. That that annoying thing, and yeah. uh, and I always see him like skinning Aaron Gleeman on my yeah. Facebook page, and uh, yeah, 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 it's remarkable. And, and Hammer he over at uh, Baseball Prospectus has lost like sixty, yeah, sixty or or more pounds at this point. So hey, uh, let's make it about them. baseball. This is a challenge. Uh, the challenge here, the constraint is to let's make uh, this current discussion about baseball. I'm curious if you've ever seen guys or who uh, prospects you've come across whose bodies have changed significantly, whether like we're talking about they were they were overweight and then you saw them, uh, I guess, uh, tighten up their physiques a little bit or if you saw them totally fall apart. Because you'll see guys across levels because you live near not only the Sally League, you also have Southern League uh, sort of within your travel radius. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if you've guys seen if you've seen guys' bodies change significantly, or whose body you can think of has changed the most. Yeah, I mean, you can see guys transform over the course of an off season. At times, it's pretty remarkable, actually. Uh, Nolan Arenado comes to mind. He's a guy that I saw a few times in the in the South Atlantic League, 
And then, you know, the following year, he, well, he had a good year. And then the following year, he really caught on with a lot of national prospect attention. And I caught him on television in, in the Futures game or one of those games, and I couldn't even recognize him. Like, he, the, the baby fat's not the right word, but he wasn't, you know, in great shape when I saw him. But he had, you know, really leaned up, added muscle. Um, his face had become chiseled. And you looked at him and you said, gosh, is this the same guy that I saw a couple years ago? Um, the same could be said the Braves have a, a guy that I um, discussed a little bit in my piece that will be going up today, the best third baseman piece, uh, Edward Salcedo. And what happens with a lot of, um, this is the generalities, but a lot of Latin American guys when they come over, um, because they are so used to in their own countries not having, you know, a lot in terms of, McDonald's and fast food takeout Chinese and stuff like that, um, you see a lot of them add weight. Like Wilmer Flores added quite a bit of weight, and many think that's what really hurt his prospect status for a couple of years. Um, Salcedo was the same way, and a lot of these guys come up, come over, you see them kind of balloon up over the course of a season, and then the off season comes, and they come out, and Salcedo was a uh, had, had gotten in shape. He had lost 20, 30 pounds and went from like 220 to like 195. So suddenly the guy that you don't know where he's going to play, maybe first base because he's getting so big, is now, you know, pretty chiseled and now looks like he could actually stick at third base. And uh, I think another guy you mentioned in terms of his body, I don't know if it changed a lot, but you said he's got a pro body now. Is I think it's Matt Skoll or Skolle. I don't know how to say his last name. Skoll. He actually lives locally. I mean, I live in Woodstock, Georgia, and the Skoll brothers are from Woodstock, Georgia. So I'm surprised I haven't seen him, like, in Publix or anything like that at some point. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, Publix is a grocery store. But um, Matt Skoll was at Georgia Tech, and he had a little bit more than you'd want to see around the midsection. Um when he was drafted and he was taken I think in the fifth round by the Nationals and got into their strength and conditioning program, instructs, went through an off season. And he's another guy that when I saw him early in the spring, I didn't recognize him. He had lost twenty, thirty pounds, he had developed a pro body, he had uh gained uh quite a bit of muscle tone and went from looking like, you know, a guy who could be good if he got himself together uh, looked like a guy who was good, who had gotten himself together. So, um, it, and and I think the the numbers showed. I mean, his numbers, even though he was playing old for the level of competition, were significantly better over the power drop off he sustained as a junior at Georgia Tech. You know, you mentioned, you know, the the way that especially maybe some Latin American guys come over, international prospects, they haven't had the exposure to. To McDonald's, and you know, I don't know what you think about McDonald's. Generally, it's it's not among our country's most nutritious uh, food items. Does not offer that necessarily. Um, what is the? I've heard Dave Cameron talk about this before. Maybe a lack of supervision uh, with regards to nutrition in in the minor leagues. I'm curious because you have exposure to this, especially because you you show up a lot of minor league clubhouses. You know. Uh, Earlier in the day, you say you, you know you show up three, four quite a bit. I'm curious what you, what you see and what you know about nutrition as it stands in the minor leagues right now. Um, you know, I think a lot of these guys are left to their own devices, unfortunately. 
<laughs> I mean, there were times when I would go see a ball game and later that night take my um, my kids or the family out to like a Moe's Southwest Grill. And I had seen Neil Ramirez of the Rangers pitch that morning, and he was ordering her burrito at Moe's that night. Um, when you live locally, when we live locally in Savannah, and we're right near the park, what would happen is they would take their bus somewhere and just drop all the guys off and say, hey, meet us back here in an hour and a half, two hours. And then anywhere in that radius that could be walked to, eaten at, and returned from um, would be in the realm of possibility, whether that was a McDonald's or whatever. Now, what happens is that these guys get something like $12 a day. And I've overheard teams talking, for example, in Rome, there is a... I think a subway right next to a steak and shake and all of the guys opt for steak and shake because it's three ninety nine instead of subway, which is probably going to be seven or eight to eat something much healthier for a lot of these guys. Money is an issue. Uh, there aren't huge signing bonuses for everybody. Um, and what winds up happening is they're the equivalent, you know, they wind up getting paid the equivalent of, I don't know, a poor, a bad part-time job during the season and then are left to their own devices in the off-season. So there's a real need for that. I, I think I actually wrote about this a couple years ago with, with Giants catcher Hector Sanchez, and I was all over him coming through the Sally. I, I loved the guy. But he was about 40 pounds overweight. He should have been about 200. He was 230, 240 when I saw him. And I wrote about... You know, after the the Angel Villalona debacle where they paid him $2 million and he reportedly, you know, killed somebody and whatever, and now he's back in the organization, you know, to try and make up for some of that money lost, if you get a guy like Sanchez in your organization who uh, probably didn't sign for a lot of money, who you think, hey, this guy can be a big leaguer for a number of years, even in a backup role, why would you not as an organization, identify 20 or 30 guys like that and give them personal trainers. I mean, if, if a win-above replacement is like $5 million and it took 50 grand to assign one player his own nutritionist and you had three or four guys like that per team that you thought were your big leaguers, I mean, you can go to a park and you can tell who the big leaguers are going to be. And you assign to each one of these guys one of those players, that's what, 1% of a win above replacement? Yeah. that's uh, That would seem like a good return on investment. Yeah, yeah. It's such a minute amount of money. Like, if if 50 guys fail and Hector Sanchez shoots to the big leagues and produces half a win behind uh, the dish and helps the team make the playoffs, I mean, that's pretty even-steven in terms of value. Right. And actually should be said that uh, Hector Sanchez is a major leaguer now. Yes. Uh, I mean, perhaps uh, what you're suggesting is he could have maybe gotten there sooner or once he did get there, maybe more effectively. But he's a pretty decent catch-and-throw guy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he but he, he's a guy that lost a ton of weight. Don't get me wrong. He lost a ton of weight. Whether he had that guidance or not, he took an offseason in the South Atlantic League, came back the next year, looked like a completely different guy, shot through, and, and by, you know, he was playing at 20 in the South Atlantic League. And he was in the big leagues at 21. It was a meteoric rise. 
And part of that had to be because he was in much better shape. I mean, the scouts that I talked to said, yeah, we love the kid, but he needs to drop 40 pounds. Okay. So, um, but, but yeah, he's a good catch-and-throw guy. You know, hits from both sides of the plate. I think at some point he'll hit a little bit more than he does now. Um, I mean, he wound up probably being rushed to the big leagues because of the Posey injury in their catching situation. But uh, he's proven that... He's good enough to stick, and at some point, he very well may get a chance to start somewhere in his mid twenties. Yeah, uh, and of course, that's not a bad player, I guess, for the Giants to have. If, I mean, this is an above replacement level catcher. Uh, was worth actually, you know, in uh, close to a win this season. Um, and it, it's interesting pairing him with a player like Posey because Posey's bat is so good that you want to keep it in the lineup. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, when you have a, sw- a switch hitting catcher like Sanchez. You're facing a left-hander. That's that's kind of a nice deployment, right? Because you can send Posey over to first base, uh, you know, in uh, in place of um, Brandon Belt or whoever they're starting over there. But generally, it's going to be Belt, especially going forward now. So you have Belt at first, or you ha- you replace Belt with Posey at first, and then you have Hector Sanchez, who's able to hit from the from the right-hand side of the plate. Um, that seems like a like a valuable player to have there. Oh, I mean, it's a very valuable player. Um, you know, you wind up uh, with value for two reasons. One, what you, exactly what you said, but two, also the fact that the guy's a minimum cost player. I mean, how many teams out there spend two, three million on a backup catcher that hits a buck seventy-five? I mean, Jeff Mathis just got an extension. So, um, what, when you're looking at being able to have a guy like that at the league minimum and then allocate those resources somewhere else, it helps you add. Hunter Pence. It helps you make deals at the deadline to make your uh, big league te- team better. Hey, uh, on the topic of uh, catch and throw type catchers uh, with maybe some other skills, I, this is, I'm totally throwing this name at you, but I know that he played uh, at least for a minute in the in the Sally League. Um, Indians catching prospect named Roberto Perez. Did you ever see him? Oh gosh, no. I mean, the the Indians were in. Uh, Lake County back in 2009, mm-hmm. and then they left. Okay. All right. um, and, and Lake County is literally like in Ohio. So what happens in the South Atlantic League is those teams that have long trips will come down every other year. So Lake County would come in 2008, but then wouldn't come in until 2010, you know. So it would be very uh, – the ability to see teams like that is very spotty yeah. in the league. Uh, like the big leagues, they have the non-balanced schedule. So every other week you're seeing Asheville or Savannah or a team that's within three, four hours. And uh, if you're lucky, uh, one of those teams will come down from North Carolina or Lakewood in New Jersey or something like that. It doesn't happen. Is it possible actually now that Lake County is just in the Midwest League? Is that is that possible? It looks like that's actually the case now. It is the mid- yes yes yeah. they moved I think 2010 yeah and have yeah. been in the mid- Midwest League since and then Bowling Green left as well so if I was interested in seeing a Midwest League team uh, Bowling Green would be the closest park for me and that's about five or so hours is that Bowling Green Kentucky yes right. Bowling Green Kentucky okay yeah wow all right well there there's that uh, let's you you, you mentioned uh, briefly your third base list coming out today it's Tuesday. Uh, you've actually been uh, doing this uh, now for the last couple of weeks. It's your your uh, a series called Newman's Zone, 
Um, you've you've had catchers, first baseman, second baseman, and and again today, third baseman will come out. And this is uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a list of players you've seen this year. Yes. Okay. Yes, the best of what I've seen this season, and in cases where it's not the best, it's guys who were you know high draft picks that wind up being tagged on to the end just because they deserve to have something said about them, and that good or bad people will. Uh, want updates on these guys. Right. Now, I do want to hit one name uh, uh, just from a, uh, you know, I want to look at a couple of the previous lists. I think we discussed catcher a little bit, but uh, you've had the first and second base list come out since the last time you and I talked a couple weeks ago. Uh, one name that both you mentioned and also that I believe Mark Hewlett mentioned in his write-up on maybe the Northwest League finals is DJ Hicks. I think I'm getting this right. I think, I think uh, Hewlett mentioned it too. DJ Hicks, uh, maybe a little old for the league, if I remember correctly, but also giant. Yeah, I mean, for me, Hicks, you know, seeing that Elizabethan team, uh, that team was loaded. I mean, you're looking at probably eight of the top 12 prospects in the in the Twins organization, and you're looking at Hicks taking batting practice alongside, you know, Byron Buxton, uh, Max Kepler, Travis Harrison, and a number of power-hitting prospects. And in terms of pure power, Hicks had more than any of them. I mean, the ball exploded off his bat, and that carried over into game action with a home run. Um, the thing about Hicks is that he's going to swing and miss a ton. He'll walk, too. I mean, he's more of a three-outcomes guy and a fine organizational player. I mean, 17th-round pick, if you're getting a good organizational player, you can't expect a whole lot more. But I wound up ranking him higher than a number of guys that were drafted higher and maybe had gotten a little bit further due to the simple fact that while I know that these other guys are going to be fringe first basemen, bench guys, you know, there's a chance that Hicks becomes more than that. And at first base, I'm much more likely to bet on big left-handed raw power and take the rest as it comes than um, want to gamble, and then maybe not even gamble, maybe want to rank a double-A first baseman like Poitras higher, who's 25 at this point, and hitting well in double-A. So, uh, yeah, I decided to roll the dice on Hicks and, and rank him a little higher than uh, a number of guys that were better known. Just because you like that, you like the ceiling, what it, what it could be? Uh... Yeah, it's not even a thing of loving, liking the ceiling. I mean, when you get on these lists, um, it's not, you know, all these guys are not going to be big leaguers. You're not looking at a list full of guys who are going to be solid pros. Mm -hmm. You get to the bottom of that list, and Hicks was ranked nine. Um, I mean, you're looking at strong or guys at this point. I mean, you know, Turtislavish was on there and Poitras was on there. You're not looking at big, um, great first base prospects because, mm -hmm. to be honest, there really aren't many big, powerful, excellent first base prospects now uh, in the game. Well, that's I mean, one of the things you mentioned in that. You said, you know, if I'm putting together a first base list, and I know this too, just when I put together my kind of, you know, players about whom I'm fantasizing currently or who mm -hmm. just have my attention, uh, when it comes to the first base slot, it, it, it is hard to put it against it because they really have – a guy's going to need one skill, 
right? Or, or one skill above all others, and that's, you know, or you know, that's power, right? Or some combination of, of, of hitting and power. And usually, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, any guy who has that, any guy who has that combination, is sort of being, uh, is sort of being celebrated already, and maybe he's going to get through his uh, system rather quickly. Yeah, to a point. I mean, it, it just so happens that because the way the game has changed in the um, whatever era you want to call it, I mean, if you want to call it the post-performance-enhancing drugs era or uh, you just want to call it a renewed interest in pitching and defense at the major league level or a combination of both, those monster first basemen are few and far between at this point. And... You know, number one on that first baseman list was Yonder Alonso, and I was surprised that he was ranked in, like, I think he was one of the top 12 first basemen, and he didn't have a particularly good year this year. Uh, he played defense, he hit moderately, and was still a top 12 first baseman. I mean, number two on that list is a guy who played, number two and four on that list are guys who played second base this year. So, I mean, you're looking at uh, many guys that are going to move and switch positions, uh, and the best pure power first baseman on that list actually ranked number three, which was Hunter Morris. And Morris's issues are the fact that he swings and misses quite a bit and doesn't walk quite as much as he should. So you're looking at there's the ability that big league pitchers are going to take advantage of that in a way that double-A pitchers don't now. And plus, I mean, there has been a renewed interest in first base defense. Uh, they, you know, somebody uh, woke up one morning, you know, had an epiphany and said, boy, if we have a really good first baseman that can pick it, he's going to make our shortstop better, our third baseman better, and our second baseman better. Boy, that's rocket science. So teams are looking for first basemen who can actually play the position other than, you know, guys who just sold out for power and you hid them at first base because they weren't going to hurt you that bad. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of uh, uh, power with other flaws uh, in the Milwaukee organization, I came across the name Brock Kieldgard today. Is that yes? Does, does that have you ever heard that name before? Yes. Okay, because he, he's got he's, in nine plate appearances, he has three home runs already in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, he is twenty six. Uh, which you know might have a lot to do with it, but um, mm-hmm. he's bat- he's batting three thirty three just if you count his home runs. Well, let me put it the best <laughs> way that I can. Yeah, um, I think I saw him. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm looking at the game logs now to see if I actually did see him. Yeah, uh, I I did see. Wait, no, you know what? He came up after I was already. Through. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I saw Huntsville, uh, their double-A squad, in July, if I remember correctly, mid to late July. Yeah. And he wasn't in double-A yeah. until um, until the end of July, early August, when they started to shift and make moves. Right. Uh, the thing about the Arizona Fall League is I think Sam Fold was once Arizona Fall League MVP. Yeah. If I'm correct, uh, the statistics in that league uh, – between the combination of, you know, uh, light air and um, the idea that many of these pitchers and hitters are tired um, and, and you're not seeing their absolute best, 
I've been told by contacts that the Arizona Fall League is pretty much the toughest league to scout and get a good read on a guy. And uh, one way I put it best, he said, more mistakes are made, and I know this is October now, but he said more, make, more mistakes are made in March, which is spring training, obviously, and uh, September and after uh, for organizations than at any other time of year. Really the best reads to get on guys are from April to, to August. And when guys are in spring training, when guys are getting tired at the end of the year, um, uh, it's, it's difficult to get really good reads on players and to identify um, guys that you want to bring into an organization. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I was just, uh, I had seen that and that was uh, that was surprising. Let's uh, let me ask you about. Well, you got his second base list. You, you published that recently, and then uh, you sort of did a companion piece to it at some level um, because you did uh, you looked at Nick Franklin. Nick Franklin mm-hmm. was uh, uh, towards the top of your second base list. He and was the top of the second base list. There you go. So very much towards the top, uh, as much towards it as you can be. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you also did sort of a, a companion piece on him. One thing about – so Nick Franklin is at this point, I guess, playing shortstop for uh, – in, in the Mariners organization. One thing that surprised me before about him, and maybe I had him confused with someone else, maybe I didn't, is that his contact rates look a lot better in the minor leagues, especially relative to level, uh, than I had remembered – uh, but what's going on with Nick Franklin right now? Well, you know, I, you have a point. Uh, at one point, I actually thought the same thing the other day when I was writing him up. I had seen at one point where he was striking out a heck of a lot more than he wound up striking out. I mean, at one point, I think he was around 27 28%. Um, and now, you know, brought those rates down under 20 uh, in double-A well below 20, and then wound up, I think, at 23 in AAA. As a 21-year-old. Uh, as a 21-year-old. As a 21-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you, you know, and, and we've been having talks off of offline of, you know, uh, equivalencies and, and what kind of value that has as far as a prospect goes, and I actually threw something into that piece about if, if you took Franklin's AAA line, which was underwhelming, uh, which was very okay, just okay, and you translated it to what the um, high A line, which was the age-appropriate league, would have been using uh, the minor league equivalency calculator that's out there online. Um, Franklin was a beast, and what happens is we take a lot of these guys who are young for levels who don't produce huge numbers, and we forget about them and shrug them off a little bit. When if you actually looked at what their line would be against age-appropriate competition, it is more impressive than the new guy that we're all talking about because he was age-appropriate and hit well at the level he was at, you know? So are there other players for whom you've, for whom you've done this? Uh, this sort of, uh, I don't know, but it's a... Uh, you're right. You're, you're trying to find equivalencies for the age-appropriate level. So in the case of Nick Franklin, who makes his way to AAA as a 21-year-old, by you know by the end of the season, uh, you say, well, yeah, sure, he he batted his his numbers look like this in the PCL, but what if he was actually in the level where you know he would be about average in terms of his age for that level? Uh, have you done this for any other players, or are there other players for whom this is uh, you've come across using using sort of um, revealing information? You know, the best example of this that I can think of was in uh, 2009. 
uh, Diane Vicieto had just signed for all that money and went and came into spring training and people thought, oh, he was ready for the big leagues and he was going to be a starting player with the Chicago White Sox from day one. And he came in out of shape and was uh, heavy. They realized he couldn't play third base. Uh, and really, you know, prospect fans, White Sox fans, everybody really started kicking this guy when he was down. And what happened as a 19-year-old in Double A, he was, you know, 5% below league average. Uh, he did bat 280 with 12 home runs, which is not a bad line in a difficult league like the uh, Southern League. And what wound up happening is, is I took those numbers as a 19-year-old and brought them uh, to the equivalency that was in low A. And when I wrote him up, I presented that information to everybody who was kind of just wanting to bury the guy. And I said, you know what? This guy still has elite bat speed when you see him play. He has flaws, but, um, you know, so does everybody at 19 in double A. Let's be fair here. And those numbers, he was something like 350, 420, like six something, uh, 600 something for the slugging percentage. I mean, they were monster, monster numbers. And think about it this way. A 19-year-old in the South Atlantic League producing those kind of numbers, what are you looking at? Everybody's talking, oh, is this guy a top 10 overall guy? Is this guy, you know, the best hitting prospect in minor league baseball? I mean, that makes huge waves in the prospect community. Yet, Diane Vicieto at 19 hitting 280, 317, 391 for a triple slash in double A at 19, um, people want to kick him in the, in the uh, chin, you know? And Is that what you were going to say originally? Or did you have to no, self-edit? No, it absolutely was not. I had to censor myself. <laughs> but but that, that was a good example there. And, and, you know, basically it was don't fret, this guy's going to be fine. And... Now he's, what, 23 and coming off a 25 home run year and, you know, showed some signs of life. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the war wasn't great, but but he certainly has power to spare and should improve. So, yeah, he, he's I, I 23. He's 23 year old who play who put up an above replacement level season. So that's not the end of the world. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's actually a pretty good year. So. Uh, that's probably the biggest, the, the reason why I started using that and, and just fiddling around with it, because in Vizieto's case, it worked. No, um, I know that, and, well, yeah, I was going to say, in some cases you see among prospect analysts um, uh, some skepticism about or or direct refusal to use uh, minor league equivalent or major league equivalencies for minor league players. Do you think that the way you're utilizing this is, is maybe sort of a, a way to, to bridge that gap or to create some understanding? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the major league equivalencies. Uh, if you notice here, I'm, I'm more uh, making equivalents to, to different minor league leagues based on age. To me, it's you know, it's something that readers are very interested in. I mean, when I was playing around the other day and I threw uh, Bryce Harper and Mike Trout's equivalencies up on Twitter uh-huh. uh, using that calculator from their major league, re, um, I keep wanting to say regress, but it's not the right word, uh, their major league numbers translated to low A baseball, which they were 20, uh, which is the league that many prospects are in at 20. Um, and each of them hit like 450 
and and they had these ungodly numbers. I think Mike Trout scored 240 runs. Um, <laughs> it's it's an interesting talking point, if if nothing else, um, you know, because a lot of these prospects who post subpar numbers as extremely young players for leagues. People always want to say, like, what's wrong with this guy? Why isn't this guy killing it? And uh, there's a lack of overall understanding there uh, as far as what these numbers translate to. So while they're not perfect, I think they do shed a little light. And more than anything, they, they push forward the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's interesting to think about. Um, and it's also sort of a way to kind of calibrate one's mind to uh, – to understand perhaps a little bit more on a on a visceral level, or to see illustrated what, what the achievement of a player um, playing um, younger than than um, you know the, the a level w- would typically suggest, right? So, like we you know you and I have talked about Juan Flores, what he did this year, and about some of the difficulties um, you know about assessing Latin American prospects generally because they come in to the league you know with uh, you know, decent-sized bonuses, and they're very young. And there's a lot of development there that you don't have to see that doesn't alter your perception of a prospect uh, who co- who signs as a high schooler or as a you know as a as a college uh, prospect because a lot of that development has happened uh, maybe a little bit more behind the scenes. Um, but uh, but yeah, when you look when you're when you translate it backwards like that, you sort of yeah, this sort of backwards translation of uh, you know a double A player back to where he you know. He would most likely be. Uh, then, you, yeah, you are able to sort of see illustrated, uh, feel in a little bit more of a visceral way uh, the, the achievements of of playing um, below t- below league average uh, age. Yeah, and you know, for me, it you know, I trust this kind of golden rule, which people question me on, and and it works for me, so I just kind of go with it. Um, it's a it's my you know, rule of 22, 24, 26, that in general, the superstar level big leaguers are up by age 22. The solid regulars are up by 24, and those fringy bench guys are up by the age of 26. And in in practice, if somebody were to take, you know, baseball reference over the last however many years and look at the names of guys who debuted at 20 to 22 versus, or, or 22 and under versus 23, 24 versus, 25, 20, or above, um, the the names, the, the difference in names and level of player are pretty staggering. So for me, I, I kind of look at those ages and I go, okay, 20 is low A, 21 is going to be high A, 22 will be double A, 23 triple A, and 23, 4 will be in the big leagues. So when I am comparing and translating those numbers in that MLE and just playing around, I'm more looking at the solid regular player that comes up. So I'll be comparing, you know, Viciato or Harper or something to the solid regular that comes up. It won't be that superstar level player because there are just so few of them. So that, that's kind of my mindset on that and why I think it works a little bit better in, in practice. Okay, so Liz, I, w- I want to just mention your third base list that's coming out today. Uh, maybe it already has come out as we speak. Um, the, the big question with regard to said third base list is: Can you can you tell me the difference between the Chikinis, or however you say them, 
Because there's like, are there like ten different chikinis? Or is it just one and he shows up everywhere? Who are these the guys? Brothers. They're brothers. They're how brothers. Many, how many we have here? I, there are two that play professional baseball. Right and they now. have, do they have the exact same first name? Is that? No, there's Garen. Yeah. With an R and Gavin with a V. Okay. And I have seen both. Yeah. And still um, mess the names up quite a bit. I always find myself going to their Fangraphs player pages and go, okay, now it's this guy the guy that plays for the Red Sox or is this guy the guy that plays for the Mets? So there's the Mets and the Red Sox. The guy on the third base list is Garen, who plays for the Red Sox. Maybe this is a way to remember. Garen with the R is on the Red Sox. So there you go. Yes. Yeah, Garen on the Red Sox. They're both, they were both uh, pretty high uh, draft picks, I believe. One plays short and then this one plays third. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, the um, Mets shortstop, uh, Caccini, was the first-round pick, 12th overall. And the other one uh, hurt himself, had a bad accident. It might have been 20 CL, if my mind serves me correctly, before the draft. And he would have been a first-round pick as well. But he wound up slipping, and the Red Sox gave him, you know, a bunch of money as an injured guy. And uh, the, the shortstop for the Mets, he's pretty good. He profiles as kind of... An average shortstop, nothing really flashy about him, but um, does everything reasonably well. And then the third baseman for the Red Sox, he um, had a big year. I think he had 48 extra base hits and 51 steals. But the um, the in-person scouting, the tools and, and things like that don't match the numbers really well. So... Um, I kind of changed my mindset with this third base list and realized that as much as I try and keep it just a scouting and projection list, when I'm looking at the players and when I'm, you know, looking at ages and things like that, that I wind up looking at the the statistics and doing some comparisons on that as well. Mm -hmm. So as much as I try to ignore that and just go on what I see at the park, uh, I, I just realized at this point I can't completely ignore the statistics so on on skills and production uh, the third baseman Caccini wound up being ranked a little higher than I would have mm -hmm. had I just looked at tools and what kind of player that I think the guy can be if he hits the ceiling because there's a lot more to this than just ceiling I mean Caccini's also has one of the highest floors on the list which may gives him value and to me he was like a more athletic version of Daniel Murphy, and that's not a bad baseball player. No, it's not. You, I mean, this is actually something you point out with Nick Franklin too, right? Is that uh, I, I think that you you said with regard to Franklin that a major leaguer about whom, or a player in general about whom, uh, of whom he reminds you, is Adam Kennedy. And I think there were some suggestions. You know, there's some questions about that uh, among among readers in the comment thread, and and I believe your point was well. You know, Adam Kennedy, not one of the great baseball players of our time, but he made it to the major leagues, and he was, you know, at times he was average. He was, he's always basically been above replacement level, and so if you can project any player to be a major leaguer, that's not bad. No, no, it's certainly not bad. It's one of those things that, especially people who love, you know, fantasy baseball and those dynasty league players and stuff like that, have trouble separating, you know, good baseball players from 
guys that are going to impact their fantasy team. Like, Nick Franklin's probably not going to be a huge impact player on anybody's dynasty fantasy league team. However, for the Mariners, he could be a pretty productive big leaguer. And I think I made the point of Kennedy, you know, during his four peak years, he was, at least in terms of metrics, defensive metrics, the best second baseman in baseball. And he was uh, 2% above league average offensively. So if you take a league average hitter, add in elite level defense, I think he averaged more than three wins through his peak. That's a well above average big leaguer. So yeah. that's, a, that's a heck of a career. And then what winds up happening is, you know, I always say this, and I've said this a number of times in pieces, that if we were to pick up the phone and call Nick Franklin right now and say, look, Nick, you can take your chances on your skills, or I can be the baseball fairy and guarantee you a career equivalent to Adam Kennedy. I guarantee you he would take the career equivalent to Adam Kennedy. Because mm-hmm. you're looking at a major league pension. You're looking at 14 years in the big leagues at, you know, minimum salaries of three to 400000 a year. Yeah. And Kennedy made a lot more than that. So, you know, if, you look, if Adam Kennedy looks back on his career and the many millions that he's made mm-hmm. and the many teams that he's been on, uh, I don't know about World Series rings, but he, he probably has gotten one over the years. He did. He won with the Angels, whatever that yeah. was, against the Giants. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, he's had a phenomenal career. And I think if you asked somebody, uh, you know, uh, a lot of minor leaguers, hey, would you swap whatever you can be for what Adam Kennedy is? Many would say absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Right. And it's a, it's a guy, especially if he's cost-controlled, uh, that's not a bad guy to have on your team if you, you know, if you are a general manager, because then you, you're locking down a position. Um, you know, those those seasons that you mentioned for Kennedy, those all came. Uh, looks like they were probably all cost controlled, maybe the exception of one. Uh, that's not a bad guy to have on your team either. A guy who's putting up average to above average numbers, and you know, you're paying him, I uh, you know, combination of league minimum and, and then whatever he's going to get through arbitration those those latter three years of team control. You know, the, the other night I, I did another podcast, and it just happened to be on a, on a Met, for a Met site. And we started talking about the future of the Mets. And, you know, the one thing the Mets have is they have a full bullpen full of cheap arms, and they have a full bench full of cheap cost-control guys. And they have some cost-control guys who are average big leaguers at the big league level. And you look at that, and that is a wonderful foundation to work from. And if there are teams, you know, like the Mariners uh, that can build around the cheap pitching, which they're going to have coming forward with the kids that are about to break through, with cheap position players, when you look at, uh, you know, Zanino, Romero, um, Franklin, Brad Miller, you know, these are all high-round draft picks. These are all guys that got considerable bonuses but uh, are cost-controlled for a number of years. You're looking at... They're going to have eight, nine, ten roster spots of contributing big leaguers making the league minimum or whatever was um, agreed upon in those first contracts. That is an awful lot of savings to put towards, you know, signing a guy. on the Mets podcast, I, I saw, I, I recommended, you know, sign Matt Harvey to a long deal right now. Uh, wrap up, you know, for the Mariners, you know wrap up a guy like Seeger for three, four years who's not a not an impact guy, but you know, 
you can do a lot worse than a three-win guy that can play second, third base, and maybe shortstop in a pinch. And you can really build around that and hope that at some point you can develop or bring into the organization a couple of impact bats, or if that doesn't work out, you get into the Josh Hamilton's true sweepstakes with some of that savings. Um, you know, to me, that's really the way built to build an, an organization. And um, right now, with what the Mariners have in the organization, they have the ability to uh, do it the right way. What is uh, you, you mentioned the, the starting pitchers that are coming up for the Mariners uh, in this case? Um, it, uh, Tywin Walker, um, James Paxton. Danny Holson are probably the main three, but they have some other guys there too. Mm-hmm. What do you? Yeah, they have a Ramirez uh, too. Right, Erasmo Ramirez. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a funny little body, but uh, he's he's pitched well uh, even at the major league level. So that's not yeah, that's not a bad thing to have. What do you expect when you see three or four prospects like that, uh, pitching prospects in particular? What do you expect in terms of major league success? major league replacement type production and then total attrition, you know, like, cause you know, you, you, there was that team or the, the three prospects that the Mets had some time ago with, you know, it was Wilson, like, Isringhausen and Pulsifer. Right. Yeah. And, uh, Isringhausen ended up having a career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Wilson was part of the back end of the Mariners rotation when they were winning a bunch of games. Um, Pulsifer, not too much. He might've become like a left-handed one-out guy, something like that. Yeah, I think he was hurt quite a bit. Yeah. Now, what do you expect in terms of, uh, just from your experience, what do you expect in terms of success from, from a crop like that? Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, you look at that and you go, well, what crop is better, the Mariners three right now uh, or, or you know, what the Braves had with Minor, Teron, and Delgado, and you see kind of how that's worked out. Their two best pitchers wound up being Beachy and Medlin, who nobody really talked about. Um there's a lot of variables, obviously, that go into a, a good pitcher. Toward the end of the year, I was sitting at a game, and I ran into a scout who I hadn't seen in three or four years. And this guy was uh, he's, he, this guy was really, really bright guy who I, who I'd had a great conversation with a, a couple years earlier, and I was excited to see him again at, at the park and pick his brain a little bit, and. You know, he talked about those three Mariners guys, and he said he had spoken to a, a guy that he trusted who had basically said, you know, everybody thinks that those guys are going to be so great. He said, but I just spoke to a guy who said well, one of the three has the ability to reach the potential that he uh, is said to have. He said the other one of those three has, and he wasn't specific at all, but I kind of figured it out. Um he said, the other one's probably not going to be quite as good as everybody thought. And he said, I wouldn't be surprised if the third guy washed out completely and turned into not much of anything. And, you know, the top guy, he was talking about Walker. And that middle guy, he was talking about Holson. And then the guy that uh, there's more concern about in the, pros- in the uh, scouting community than maybe the prospect community is Paxson um, with the, some of, of those command issues and um, – with him in particular, they think if any of the three are going to underachieve, that it's going to be uh, Paxton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but right. I mean, it's uh, it, it it's hard, I guess, uh, for anyone to you know to, to temper one's enthusiasm as much, especially when you see a group of guys coming out like that. 
Well, you know, look at the playoffs right now. I mean, everybody uh, everybody knew Shelby Miller with the Cardinals mm-hmm. that follows prospects. But how many knew about Rosenthal? How many knew about Kelly? Um, right, right. You know, you wind up finding pitching where you really don't expect it. And a lot of times that great pitching that you expect to come forward um, gets hurt or has an, has an issue. I mean, I don't completely believe in the whole, uh, what is it, tin stat? Right, right. I think that's oversimplified, and I think that's a little bit of dummy logic. But um, on a broad scale, there is some truth to, to that whole idea, considering I've seen, and one of your um, crushes, at least for a week, I mean, I saw Colin McHugh pitch a bunch in Savannah. Yeah. And never thought much of him. And then he has a good first start, and Carson Sestouli is writing about how great he was. Well, uh, I... I, 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 (laughs) Or how great he was in that one particular start. In that one start, start, yeah. And why, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at it, it's like this guy... I mean, this guy just got major league batters out, and it wasn't flukish entirely. It, well, it wasn't flukish in the sense that, you know, from like a batted ball perspective. Like, I think he yeah. had like 10 strikeouts, didn't he, in his debut? Or something yeah, close yeah, to I that. Yeah, I think so. And, and a guy like McHugh, I mean, if you look at him, he's never been hurt. He's stayed healthy. Um, from what I've been told, he developed a little cutter, little new pitch that he's been using, uh, much like Schwinden did, uh, when he made that rapid ascent through the Mets system. And... You know, you take the mound every fifth day. You do what your organization asks you to do because he wasn't always starting. And you just keep moving up, up, up while, you know, Mejia has Tommy John and other guys bomb out. I mean, there there is um, there is a whole part of this that if you stay healthy and you keep pitching and you prove that you're durable, you're going to be trusted to most likely play at the upper levels. And... You know, AAA becomes all about who can produce for a 15-day DL stint, a week-long concussion stint. It's not about who's going to be that guy that anchors your rotation. It's about is the guy going to stay healthy in AAA, can he throw a bunch of innings there, and can we use him like a wet mop if we need to. And guys like McHugh fit the mold. So there are guys that are going to stay in organizations because of that. Right. Hey, listen, Mike Newman. You did it. You did the podcast. You you successfully completed it. Yes, I did. Feel good? Self-esteem? Yeah. All-time high? Well, I don't know about all-time high, but yeah. you know, generally speaking, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It's going. Well. I mean, after you totally dissed me on Friday, this is a lot better. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Yeah, <laughs> just because someone doesn't check his email. Yeah, well. that's yeah. Hmm. You know, I, you know, I just know I see how it is. Yeah, there are more um, modern methods of communication than email. My yeah, friend. just remember when you when you point your finger at someone, you get at least three fingers pointing back at you. And I have to point my finger at a guy that actually is wider than my finger, so I could actually see him through my finger. Yeah. Hey, uh, stick around for a second, but uh, in the meantime, thanks for joining us. All right, Carson, I appreciate it. All right, that's a uh, prospect analyst. Mike Newman in this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Oh, wait, I should say, that's that's Mike Newman. I'm Carson Zestuli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. What I mean to say.